You guys can have a seat. We're uh, starting a brand new sermon series this morning called Amazed. Uh, We're going to spend the next eight weeks studying some of the amazing things that Jesus did uh, that are uh, specifically found in the Gospel of John. Um, And so before we get into our story this morning, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, thank you for being amazing. Thank you for doing amazing things um, in our lives, in our world, on our behalf. And Father, as amazing as those things can be, thank you for uh, not just doing them for show, uh, thank you for for having a deeper purpose. Thank you for uh, revealing yourself to us through these amazing things that you've done in the past and these amazing things that you're you're doing in our lives today. Um, Help us to see what you have to say. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So as a youth pastor, I get the opportunity to be a part of a lot of weddings. Uh, I've officiated some. Uh, I've stood up in a few for family mostly, but I get invited to a lot. And that sounds like bragging, um, but it's really not. Who brags about how many weddings? Like, I go, to, I go to this many weddings. Like, that's not really a thing that people brag about. And plus, when you get invited to a wedding, it really means that you just have to buy a gift, right? So I don't know that it's worth bragging about. It just means that you're on the hook to spend some money. But, but really, I do love weddings. I love going to weddings. I love being a part of wedding ceremonies. Um, I, I like when I officiate a wedding, I like meeting with couples beforehand uh, to talk about what their marriage and what their lives together uh, will look like, uh, to, to kind of dream together and, and, uh, and just kind of be part of that. I, I like, uh, believe it or not, you, you might not believe it from the way I look right now, but I do like getting dressed up on occasion uh, for special occasions, right? Um, I, I like the ceremony. I like, I like sitting through the wedding itself. Uh, I like the, the rich biblical symbolism and metaphors that are found in a wedding. Uh, I like all the, all the different wedding traditions that people do. And, and I really like the party, I really like the party after the ceremony. I like dinner a lot. Um, I, I like the dinner. I like, I like dancing. Uh, my family uh, has a, a history of dancing. We're not good at it, but you know, we do enjoy dancing. Uh, I like the joy, the celebration. Uh, it's a fun day. Weddings, weddings are a fun day. Um, they're fun, but it's not usually a perfect day. Uh, weddings, usually something goes wrong. Like I like, to, I like to prepare couples when we go through pre-marriage counseling that um, something's going to go wrong. I mean, I don't mean it to be ominous, but like it's something will happen that will make it not 100% perfect. And it just kind of depends. The magnitude of what's going to go wrong kind of depends on the level of planning. And like you can plan, but there's going to be something that goes wrong. Uh, And so just be ready for it. Something won't go according to your plan. Um, So some of the things I've seen, maybe your ring bearer is going to throw up. Or maybe he's going to faint on the stage and almost fall off the stage if not for the very quick reflexes of one of the other groomsmen uh, to catch the fainting ring bearer. Um, Your veil might catch fire on the unity candle. (laughs) I've seen that. Um, The mother of the bride may get drunk and walk around the party bad-mouthing the groom and his family to everyone at the reception that will listen to her. I have unfortunately seen that. 
Maybe your flower girl decides to lift her dress all the way up over her head as she's coming down the aisle. Or maybe she decides to lay down right in the middle of the aisle. Or maybe she just is really aggressive with how she throws the flower petals and guests are just getting flowers in their eyeballs. Um, I've seen all of those things happen. Um, Ring bears and flower girls are like the most likely thing to not go according to plan at a wedding, but they're adorable, so it's usually okay. Uh, The sound tech might play the wrong music. They might forget a cue. Now, I'm contractually obligated to point out that that's never happened in this church because I don't want my mic to get turned off this morning. So our sound techs are always perfect. Um, If you're planning an outdoor wedding, you're especially brave because now you have to contend with weather that's completely out of your control. Uh, I've been at weddings that are moved inside at the last minute because it's raining and that wasn't in the forecast. I've been at weddings that are so cold that when the bride and groom are making their vows, you can physically see the vows rising up into the sky in their breath. Um, The toast is always a pretty good bet to go sideways at the reception, uh, especially if there's an open bar. Uh, I I once attended a wedding where the best man... uh, had a little to drink before the toast, and uh, he thought it would be a good idea to just stand up and pass the microphone around the room, not just at the, at the head table, but to any guest that caught his eye that, that he thought might have something to say in the toast. Uh, maybe it's the minister who makes the mistake, uh, like the time I forgot to tell the guests at a wedding that they could be seated, uh, and the whole room stayed standing for like 10 solid minutes while the wedding continued until I noticed uh, and let them sit down. Uh, Or maybe, just maybe, you schedule your wedding in northern Michigan in the middle of October, uh, and it's a full-on blizzard on your wedding day, and so the trolley that you rented to ride around town offers zero visibility out the windows with a side of frostbite as you wade through the two-foot-tall snowdrifts to get to the reception hall because the trolley got stuck 200 feet away and couldn't get into the parking lot. I mean, that could happen to somebody 18 years ago on October 18th. As long as there have been weddings, there have been things that go wrong at weddings. And and I know because that's the plot of the story we're going to look at this morning. Uh, It's in John chapter 2. If you want to turn there, it'll be on the screen as well. Uh, In John chapter 1, leading up to this, Jesus had been recruiting disciples. Uh, He had been walking around. He'd been been gathering disciples. At this point, as far as we can tell, he had at least five disciples that were uh, kind of following him around. And and then here in in the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding. Uh, and, and so that's the, that's the basis of the story we're going to look at. So it's in John chapter 2, uh, starting here in verse 1. On the third day, a, wed- a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, Tactful, Jesus. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now take some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
So Cana is a small village in the region of Galilee. It's a few miles north of Nazareth, which if you recall is where Jesus grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. And so Cana is, is you know, in his neighborhood or at least adjacent to his neighborhood. And, and so Jesus and his mother and his disciples are invited to a wedding there. So it was probably a wedding for a relative or maybe a family friend, someone they knew, uh, likely. I mean, the text doesn't say, but we're guessing. Uh, and, uh, and in first century Jewish culture, weddings were a big deal. I mean, weddings are a big deal to us, but like, not like they were in the first century, um, especially in a small village like this one where like, everyone knew everybody else. Think like Fiddler on the Roof or My Big Fat Greek Wedding or Mamma Mia. Yes, I've seen Mamma Mia four times and on stage. I told you I like weddings. So this wedding was announced far in advance and it was celebrated by the whole village. Everybody got invited. Uh, everybody in the village got to come. And, and Jewish wedding ceremonies sometimes lasted up to a whole week long. And, and so it was just this ongoing big celebration uh, that, that kept going and going. And it was the groom's uh, family that was financially responsible uh, to make sure this party uh, was a good one, that, that it could last. And so running out of supplies, uh, especially supplies like food and drink, would be embarrassing in a culture that revolves so much around social gatherings. Jewish culture was a, a very much a, a gathering culture about getting together socially. And, and that's exactly what happened. The party ran out of wine. And it was a crisis for the host. It was, this would have been a, a, a problem. It would have been a big deal. And, and so before we get to what the story is about, I feel like I, I should clarify what, it, what it's not about. <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. This is not a story about whether or not a Christian ought to drink alcohol. Now, there's stuff in the Bible that talks about whether or not a Christian should drink too much. But this story specifically isn't really designed to make that point. I've heard people argue that since there are other places in the Bible that tell us not to get drunk on wine, that the wine in this story must have been non-alcoholic, that, that they were having a week-long party with, with grape juice, with unfermented wine. And that's forcing a perspective onto the Bible rather than reading the Bible for what it says. When the Bible says wine... In this, in this story, uh, it, mean, it means wine. That, that word for wine is used 34 times in the New Testament, and it's fairly well established that when that word is used, it's talking about wine with alcohol in it, um, which shouldn't be too surprising because in the first century, drinking wine was common. Um, they would water it down, but they would have it at meals. It, it was a regular thing. It was, it was a social custom. It was rel relatively normal, um, you know, particularly at, at a party. So call, calling it grape juice doesn't really fit the cultural context of a Jewish wedding party uh, or of really the whole Greco-Roman world. Um, and and it, it doesn't really make that much sense. Um, I mean, especially with the comments that the host makes later, if the guests are drinking grape juice, the story doesn't make sense. Who serves the good grape juice at the beginning and saves the, the cheap, like, non-Welch's grape juice for the end? Um, and for that matter, as far as I'm concerned, who serves that much grape juice at a party anyway? <laughs> That's a lot of grape juice to serve. And the host doesn't, uh, the, the host even says that the cheap stuff is for when the guests have had too much to drink and can't really tell the difference anymore. Because that verb that's used for, this is, this is your Greek lesson for the morning, that verb that's used for too much to drink means 
Getting drunk means you, you've, drunk, you've drank too much. It doesn't mean you've had too much liquid and your body's just like very full of liquid. It means that you've, you're under the influence, right? And, and can't function properly. So, so here's, here's the, the point of this. There are plenty of good reasons why a, a Christian might abstain from drinking alcohol. But this story is not designed to push that perspective to encourage uh, that as, as a stand. Now, technically, this story does not say that Jesus himself was drinking wine. I mean, we, you could infer that maybe he was, but it doesn't say that, so I don't wanna infer that he was, but certainly it doesn't seem, it doesn't really come across like Jesus is against people drinking wine. Because why, why make more um, if Jesus is opposed to that fundamentally. And so th- this story is not about whether or not we should drink alcohol. What is it about? Okay, well, let's get to that. So Jesus is here at a wedding party. He's with his mom and with his disciples, and the wine runs out. That's what we know. And uh, Mary finds Jesus to let him know, quote, they have no more wine. Now, we don't know why she feels responsible to fix that problem, Um, I've heard some preachers suggest that she was the caterer for this wedding, and I feel like that's a a little bit of a stretch. Um, We're just kind of guessing at that. Uh, But whatever the reason, Mary pulls Jesus into the problem. Uh, And I'm not sure at this point what Mary thinks Jesus is going to do about it. Um, In the Gospel of John, Jesus Jesus hasn't done a miracle yet. This is the first sign uh, that we get from Jesus. And so uh, I, I don't know what Mary thinks Jesus is going to do, but she seems to think at minimum that he ought to know. He ought to know that there's no more wine. And even Jesus seems a little bit confused by his mom, doesn't he, in this? Woman, why do you involve me? (laughs) Calling his mom woman, it almost sounds offensive to us, but really that's just a formal way to address a female. Uh, Ma'am, Mrs., you know, there's not, there's not a great equivalent in English, but, but still it's a little weird, isn't it? It's a little weird for Jesus to address his mother in, in such a formal way, um, especially at this kind of an informal party setting. Uh, and why do you involve me literally means what do we have in common? So, so Jesus is asking, how is this thing that it concerns you so much, how, how is it related to me? Why, why is this something that I need to be part of? Um, And then his mom ignores him and tells the servants to just do what he tells them, which is like my favorite part of this story. Um, It's such a mom flex, right? That that she's like, hey, Jesus, this party's out of wine. And Jesus is like, well, that's not really my problem, mom. And she's like, cool, just do what he says. (laughs) Like she doesn't even engage like Jesus's objection. Um, And I like it. I like that Mary's so bold in this moment. I like that she tries to kind of manipulate Jesus into doing something by using her status as his mother. And then Jesus like gently kind of shuts her down in this moment. But then I like that she, she shows faith in Jesus by kind of just leaving the whole thing up to him. And when she does that, he honors her and does something amazing. I think it's really cool that when Mary tries to like manipulate Jesus into doing what she wants him to do, he shuts it down. But then when she backs off and says, just do whatever he says, anything he decides to do in this situation is gonna be fine. And then Jesus is like, cool, now, we can, now something can happen. Now we can do something. And this isn't the main point of the story, but, but I think there's a good lesson in this, that, that when we try to force Jesus to do what we want because we think like he owes us something or we've behaved really well in the last few months, so he must, you know, he needs to give me what I want, like he probably will shut that down. 
But when we come to Jesus in belief and, and in faith and when we trust uh, that he can handle our problem and when we, we legitimately just leave it with him and legitimately say, whatever you decide to do is, is gonna be cool for, for me, he might just do something incredible. Like we see that time and time again through the gospels that like Jesus responding to faith by doing amazing things. And so Jesus points out these six really big water jars nearby and he tells the servants to fill them with water. Um, And verse six tells us that they're not just random jars for holding extra drinking water in a back room somewhere, but that they're the kind of jars that were used for ceremonial washing. Um, And that's what stone jars were used for in Jewish households because clay jars could be contaminated, but stone jars couldn't couldn't be contaminated. The water couldn't be contaminated. So they used them for for the washings that the Old Testament commanded uh, in order for them to, to keep from becoming unclean. And each of these jars, we're told, holds between 20 and 30 gallons. And so my advanced math degree tells me that Jesus is about to make a lot of wine. Uh, six jars times 20 to 30 gallons, that's a lot of wine. I thought about, uh, I thought about physically representing, like buying 150 gallons of wine and like showing, but I didn't think that was a great use of church budget money. So I decided we'll just imagine it. So a lot of wine, right, that Jesus is about to make. And it's good wine too. Like the story is clear about that. Jesus doesn't skimp on the vintage of this wine. Uh, and the host's observation makes sense that at most parties, the good wine comes out first. And when most of the guests have had all they want, you can bring out the cheaper wine for the few people who are still drinking. Uh, and the host is really clear about this point that none of the wine that came before at, at this party is better than what is being served now that Jesus got involved. Once Jesus got involved, the quality of the wine improved like exponentially. Um, it's like one of those commercials. You've seen those commercials with like the most interesting man in the world. Like I don't always turn water into wine, but when I do, <laughs> it's the best wine you've ever had. And it seems like a really simple story, right? About Jesus showing up as a wedding guest and there's a problem and Jesus steps in and fixes the problem until you get to verse 11, until you get to the verse at the very end, it says what Jesus did here at Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is clearly a miracle. Turning water into wine isn't a a normal, everyday kind of -of run-of-the-mill occurrence. At least I've never seen it done. Uh, But there's there's a difference between a miracle and what John calls this as a sign. Um, Now, a miracle shows power, certainly. Uh, It shows that, that someone is able to do through their own power or through God's power something really amazing. It leaves people amazed. The people who saw it are, are impressed by what they saw. Uh, but a sign reveals something that was hidden before. A sign shows us something. A sign teaches us something. A sign is a, a vehicle for revelation. And lots of, lots of people saw Jesus' power and still didn't believe in him as Lord. There were lots of people in the crowds that followed Jesus around. They witnessed these things that he did, but not all those people believed in him when they saw the power, when they saw the miracle. Because miracles don't always lead to faith. Seeing amazing things doesn't always lead us to believe. Um, in, in fact, a lot of times miracles have a way of stealing the spotlight away from what's actually important. A lot of times uh, miracles uh, cause a problem in our faith. The, the problem of anchoring your faith to a miracle is that the miracle becomes the goal of your faith. That, that you, you end up chasing the next 
big experience, the next powerful moment. You, you, you feel incomplete until you have that next big like mountaintop spiritual experience. And, and we, we start to chase after the miracles instead of the miracle worker. But signs are all about taking us deeper. They're about challenging us to explore the meaning behind the miracle. And this is probably the main purpose that John's trying to accomplish in his entire gospel. Near the end of his gospel, in chapter 20, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Um, But these, these signs, these ones that John chose to write about, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, This is the first of eight signs that John records, and and we're going to go over these in this series. And John insists that the reason he wrote about these particular signs was to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. And in in our rational world, in our, our cause and effect scientific worldview, learning about God through miraculous signs can be a little hard to believe. Um, I, I know for me, it is. I know for me, I, I, I'm, I'm a, kind of a natural skeptic, and when I read about amazing things, my first instinct is to be skeptical of them. But, but think about this. What if, what if the world isn't necessarily built exactly the way we think it is? Uh, not exactly according to our assumptions. What, we think of miracles as acts that defy the laws of nature, that, that suspend them or break them, but, but who created nature in the first place? Who, who wrote the laws that nature runs by? If God decides to change the way things usually work in the world to show us his power and teach something uh, about himself, do you think he, he couldn't do it? What if, what if the laws of nature obey God and not the other way around? Couldn't the God who made everything do something amazing to get our attention, to make a point, to show us something about himself? And if he did, if he did, as surprising as the miracle would be to see, as amazing as, and cool, honestly, as it would be, the most important thing for us would be to try to figure out why. Why did God do that? What, what point was he making? What does he want to teach us? What does he want me to take away and learn from that? And, and that's exactly the question we're going to be asking throughout the duration of this series. What Jesus did in Cana is not nearly as important as why he did it. It makes a statement for all to hear about, about who Jesus is and what he's here to do. This is, this is his entrance on, on to the, into the public eye. This is his, his first moment, according to the Gospel of John. And this first sign has a lot to teach us about who Jesus is. The first thing that I see in this is that Jesus is a regular human person. He went to parties. He ate food. He drank wine, probably. He wasn't some antisocial monk who lived out in the wilderness. That was his cousin. His his critics were constantly accusing him of partying uh, and being a glutton and a drunkard. Um, Now, that doesn't mean he was. It doesn't mean Jesus actually got drunk or ate too much. That's just what people who didn't like him said about him. Um, and so take that for, for what it is. But, uh, but, but Jesus participated in the social uh, atmosphere of the first century, right? Uh, he, he participated in social events. This is a story about how Jesus stepped into a wedding uh, of good friends and he fixed a simple problem. They were out of wine. 
And it's easy for us to, to spiritualize the work of Jesus and think that he only cares about the big stuff. Like if it's not about saving souls or changing lives forever, he's, he doesn't have time for it. He's not really interested in it. We wonder, does Jesus really care about the everyday stuff, about the little stuff, about the, the mundane day-to-day stuff? And this story says yes. This story says that, that he does. Um, you know, Jesus, we're out of wine. Can, can you do something about that? This story shows that you can invite Jesus into, into little problems, the little things that, that seem almost embarrassing that you can't handle on your own. Uh, he's cool with that. There's really nothing too small to bring to Jesus. And I think, that's, I think that's reassuring. I think there's a comfort in that. This story also shows that Jesus is focused on doing God's will above everything else. So while there's nothing too small to bring to Jesus, this story doesn't mean that like, there's a guarantee that he's going to do whatever you want. If he didn't do it for his mother, he's probably not going to do whatever you want, right? So, so his mom comes to him, and, and Jesus shows her that, that he's not under her authority as the son of God. He, Jesus has to do what God directs him to do. Uh, only God tells Jesus what to do, and Jesus will do anything God directs. Now, you might hear that, that only God tells me what to do and, and, and resonate with you, in, especially in this current culture, right, where we all feel like, how dare you tell me what to do, uh, what, what, how, how to live my life, right? And you'd be like, yeah, only God tells me what to do. Nobody gets to tell me what to do except God. So let me point out a couple things uh, if you're thinking that, if you've heard yourself say that. So you're not Jesus. That's the first thing I want to point out. I don't know if that's news to you, but you're not Jesus, I'm not Jesus, so be careful. Uh, be careful about standing on that, uh, that, that idea. And also notice that Jesus still does the miracle. Uh, he, he, doesn't, he points out that he's not under his mom's authority, that he's under God's authority, but he still does the miracle. Uh, he, he wasn't necessarily opposed to doing the thing. And, um, and if you do use nobody gets to tell me what to do but God as an excuse to get out of doing something that really you just don't wanna do, um, then I would hope that when God does tell you what to do, you would jump at the chance to do it. And so just be careful. Be careful before you jump on the bandwagon of, you know, like, yeah, I only do what God tells me to do. Okay, <laughs> I hope that's true. I hope you know what you're getting into by saying that. Uh, that's what Jesus lived by, and it should be our aim. We should live by that as well. We should aim to do what God tells us to do. But let's not use that as an excuse just to do what we want to do. But the main thing we learn about Jesus in this, it comes from the sign itself, the thing that he does. Uh, He gives a huge amount of the best wine that the people have ever tasted. The stone jars for purification are being filled by something new. Jesus takes what used to be in them and he fills it, he changes it completely. Um, he doesn't just make it better. It's not better water. It's something different than water. He, he fills it with something new. The old wine runs out, uh, and Jesus replaces it with new wine, with better wine. Uh, the wine that Jesus brings is better than the wine we had before, and that's unexpected. Um, you can see it in the host's reaction. That's a surprise. Um, as Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 2, uh, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Uh, or, or the way Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. What Jesus brings is unexpected. It's better than anything we had before and there's plenty for everybody. It's, it's not really not gonna run out. 
And, and so the, kind of the final question, the landing point this morning is, what is it? What does Jesus bring? What is this new, better wine that Jesus brings? And, and, I, and I think the stone jars are still kind of the key. They were used for one purpose under the law, under the old co- covenant, the Old Testament, but Jesus repurposes them in order to serve this new wine that he's bringing. The, the water in the jars that, that kind of stood for the way things had always been done uh, in, in the Jewish religion, um, the laws and the religious customs and the traditions that they held dear, the water is replaced by Jesus with something new, something better, the, the story tells us. And, and the jars, I think it, it's, not, it's not just an incidental side note that it says the jars were filled to the brim. There was no more room for water in these jars. These are wine jars now, filled to the brim with this new wine. And this new wine that Jesus bring, it brings can't come from jars that are still being used for their old purpose. They have to be repurposed. The sign brings to mind the prophecies in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord, when God's blessings and the coming of the Messiah are symbolized by wedding feasts and the abundance of wine in the land, a land filled with wine that will never run out. And these jars that were used for washing can't be used that old way anymore because the Messiah has come. And the Messiah touched these jars and he made them obsolete for their, first, for their original purpose. He made them obsolete for purification. They were filled with wine. You can't go you know, wash your hands in the wine in order to make yourself clean. They can't be used that way anymore. So Jesus is, comes and makes things new. A new creation. So when Jesus performs a miracle, it's never just a show of, it's never just, you know, look at what, look what I can do. Uh, it's, not ju- it's never just about impressing the crowd. When Jesus does a miracle, John says, it's a sign. It's something designed to get our attention and point to something deeper about who Jesus is and what he's here to do. And the, the, the story says that the servants at the wedding saw the sign, they saw what Jesus did, but they didn't necessarily see the glory. They didn't see what it said about him. But in verse 11, it says the disciples saw the sign and they saw the glory of Jesus behind the sign, and it says, and they believed. They saw what Jesus was getting at. They saw what it meant. They saw what it had to teach about him. They saw that he cared about the little things, like saving a a party that had run out of wine. It wasn't beneath him to, to step into a situation like that. They saw that he was focused on doing God's will and living God's way and and, and only God's way. And they understood that this act was connected to, to prophecies about the Messiah. They understood that Jesus was staking a claim to the title of Messiah. And they saw that God was doing something new and something better right in front of their eyes. And so what about us? What has Jesus been doing in your life that's unexpected? I know that lately it's been really distracting, everything that's been going on. We're, we're very focused on, uh, on health and safety and on whether we should or shouldn't do whatever thing, fill in the blank. But I want to I change the question. I want to change our focus this morning to what has Jesus been doing? What, is, what has Jesus been doing in your life, in your sphere of influence, in your realm, in your world that's unexpected, that's new, that's better? What ideas or, or traditions are you holding on to that Jesus is gently nudging you to maybe replace with something better, with something new? Don't just come to Jesus for what he can do for you, like he's some kind of vending machine, that if you do the right things, live the right way, you get the right result. 
this series really isn't going to be about do this, don't do this. This series, week in and week out, is going to be what does this show us about Jesus? What does it show us about who he is and what he's like? And I want us to reflect on who he is and what he's like and what he's been doing in our lives that we've maybe not even been noticing. Um, And so we're going to do that here uh, in a minute. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for being intentional. Thank you for, uh, for not just showing off your power, but thank you, for, uh, thank you for showing us Jesus. Thank you for revealing yourself um, in the person of Jesus so that we never have to wonder what you're like. We can look to Jesus. Thank you for doing new and unexpected things in our lives. Help us to notice Help us to understand that it's you that's working and not just some random chance. Father, as we enter into a communion time and reflect on, uh, the, on what Jesus has done for us in the past, um, I, I, just pray, uh, I just pray that you'll open our eyes and our hearts to the things that you're doing in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.